0: Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy, here with my co-host
1: Hattie Dulac. Hello, Hattie. Hi, Kate. I was hoping we might be able to make today's recording a face-to-face one, but it's just too covered out there. And thank you to our supporter Borrowbox, our library app that allows you to download eBooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. Now we can't wait for our libraries to reopen for book browsing on the 12th of April. Yeah,
0: our library staff have been inside our building for months, doing a fantastic job of handing over books at the library entrance. But from next week, we'll be welcoming people back inside to choose the books they want from off our shelves.
1: And the big news is that for the first time, as far as we know, Hampshire Libraries is cancelling all library fines for overdue books, no matter how old they are. And don't get too excited because this fines holiday
0: runs only until the 1st of June. It's to make sure everyone has enough time to safely return anything you've borrowed from us.
1: Apparently there are 11,000 overdue books out there at the moment. Not surprising since we've been in lockdown for most of the last 12 months. So we're allowing
0: lots of time for you to get them back.
1: You'll find all the details about our fines amnesty on our website, along with information about how we'll be opening our buildings to keep our staff and visitors safe.
0: And don't forget to check the opening days and opening hours of your local library before you visit. Not all libraries are open on a Monday, so your local branch may not be opening its doors from day one.
1: And of course, it's not just libraries that are gearing up for a more sociable summer. I think lots of us have enjoyed making the most of meeting up with other people over the last week or so. That's true. In fact, I made the most of the opportunity
0: and for the first time in over a year, met up with our guest author for this edition
1: rather than doing the interview online. We'll shortly be hearing Kate's conversation with Claire Fuller, who's just been longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. She'll be talking all about her latest book, Unsettled Ground. And then later on, we'll be joined by Holly from Farnborough Library, who'll be telling us about a book she'd like to recommend. But first, let's turn to Claire Fuller,
0: who's long been a supporter of Hampshire Libraries. She even acted as chair of our judging panel for a writing competition we held a few years ago.
1: So we were delighted to see her being recognised by such a prestigious award, alongside writers like Ali Smith and Susanna Clarke.
0: Although it's not the first time her writing has been spotlighted by the industry, as she picked up a major award for her first novel, which was
1: Our Endless Number Days, which came out in 2015. She's a writer who doesn't easily fit into an obvious genre, although I've heard some critics talk about her as the modern-day Daphne du Maurier. As with that legendary writer, there's usually some long-buried family secrets to be unearthed. Here she is talking about her new book, Unsettled Ground. The interview
0: starts with Claire reading a short section from the start of the novel.
2: The morning sky lightens and snow falls on the cottage. It falls on the thatch, concealing the moss and the mouse damage, smoothing out the undulations, filling in the hollows and slips, melting where it touches the bricks of the chimney. It settles on the plants and bare soil in the front garden and forms a perfect mound on top of the rotten gatepost as though shaped from the inside of a teacup it hides the roof of the chicken coop and those of the privy in the old dairy leaving a dusting across the workbench and floor where the window was broken long ago in the vegetable garden at the back the snow slides through the rips in the plastic of the polytunnel chills the onion sets four inches underground and shrivels the new shoots of the Swiss chard. Only the head of the last winter cabbage refuses to succumb, the interior leaves, curled green and strong, waiting. In the high double bed up the left staircase, Dot lies beside her adult daughter, Jeanie, who is gently snoring. Something different about the light in the room has woken Dot and she can't get back to sleep. She gets out of the bed, floorboards cold, air colder, and puts on her dressing gown and slippers. The dog, Jeanie's dog, a biscuit-coloured lurcher who sleeps on the landing with her back to the chimney breast, raises her head, inquiring about the early hour as Dot passes, luring it when she gets no answer. Downstairs in the kitchen, Dot jabs at the embers in the range with the poker and shoves in a ball of paper some kindling and a log she feels a pain behind her left eye between her left eye and her temple does the place have a name she needs to go to the optician get her eyes checked but then what how will she pay for new glasses she needs to take a prescription to the chemist but she is worried about the cost the light is wrong down here too lowing, owing, glowing She touches her temple as though to locate the soreness and sees through the curtains in the gap where they don't quite meet that it is snowing. It is the 28th of April.
0: Thank you very much for joining me for this, which is my first face-to-face interview with an author for over a year. We are sitting in, as you can hear, the local park, so occasionally you'll hear a dog barking, or there are tree surgeons working on some trees the other side of the park. So every so often you'll hear the roar of the, uh, the saws going off or the train going past, but maybe a bit of bird song as well, which would be nice. But, um, so it's, it's always a really special moment when a Claire Fuller novel comes out, and this time is no exception. Uh, Unsettled Ground is your fourth book, so would you tell us a bit about it?
2: Yes, it's, it's about uh, twins. Jeannie and Julius who are 51 years old and still live with their mother in a cottage in rural Wiltshire just on the edge of a village and they have lived their whole lives being very isolated and making a little bit of money from gardening and Julius does a few odd jobs and the novel starts So this, is, this isn't a spoiler because it's right at the beginning the novel starts when their mother dies of a stroke and they discover her body and everything that they have known begins to unravel and they have to look at... I guess they're kind of thrust out into the real world and they have to
0: cope and they don't cope very well. This book embraces uh, so many incredibly vivid themes and ideas, Uh, but one of the main ones I felt was about the frustrations and humiliations of rural poverty and and marginalization. was there something about this subject matter which drew you to it Uh, and and how did you go about rooting the experience of rural poverty in reality? It
2: wasn't something I was drawn to because I don't tend to work with my novels that way (laughs) I don't I don't plan so I I didn't know when I started who these people were or where they were going to live or what the situation was Um, but the inspiration I suppose for it came when I was taken by my son to a dilapidated caravan in the woods that had been vandalized and was very smelly and some things had been left behind old bedding and some pair of shoes and things like that and it just made me think who who lived here what circumstances took them to this caravan and where did they go on from here and and then the kind of person who might have had to deal with those that situation became Genie, the main character in this novel, but I went back in time to see what, what might have taken her there. And once I decided that and the kind of, I started writing, and in fact I start with, with her mother Dot, and I, as I write I begin to understand where they live, then I see that they are poor, they don't like officialdom, they don't like um, strangers kind of interfering in their lives, um, government agencies, bodies, you know, all that kind of thing. They don't have a bank account, they don't have technology. Um, so the rural poverty theme, which I agree is a very big theme, crept up on me. It wasn't something that I planned. Um, and rooting it in reality, I mean, it, it didn't seem possible to go and interview the rural poor, you know, that would not have been appropriate but i i wanted to try and get it right so i did speak to people who have interactions with them you know healthcare workers and that kind of thing so without them telling me about particular individuals but just saying yes people do live like this and they do have these issues and these challenges Um, and then i went to the location so it's set in the north wessex downs and i also tried to shop do a food shop with the amount of money that Jeannie has, you know, to go to the co-op in Winchester and spend £5.55 when I know I need everything. You know, so that's those kinds of things I did to try and root it in reality.
0: Mm, Those brutal decisions about what you buy and what you don't buy. Yeah, it was illuminating. Yeah, I mean that's that's something I find fascinating with your writing, that you came to writing, I mean you've written all your life, but you came to writing novels um, after a successful career in sculpting marketing and i always wonder where your these wonderful creations these people you create out of mist where did that creativity how did you use that before you got into writing did you come up with these characters before you wrote about them
2: no no they. Uh... I do now, now that I'm a writer, I do look around and, you know, I might see someone walking past and I invent a history for them or or as an exercise I will sit down and sketch them with words. So rather than when I used to do drawing, I, I would draw strangers in cafes and hope they didn't see me looking at them too often, staring at them in a very peculiar way. Now I will do the same and and write a kind of profile of them and from there that will often lead to to a story and their history or where they might be going next or who they're meeting um, so I do do that but I don't do it before I start writing a novel those are just little extras that I do um, what I I've always been a reader but like you said I didn't start writing creative fiction until I was 40 um, so I, I used to do a lot of sculpting, so maybe it was just another outlet for my creativity, mm. the writing.
0: It's, it, it's extraordinary how I guess those are connected, those, those things. Um, now, those of us who've loved your earlier work will be delighted to find in this book another piano in the woods. <laughs> but you're also returning to ideas of isolation and unearthing long hidden secrets. Um, at one point in the book, one of the characters talks about the difficulty of rewriting your own history. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about why that makes for such a compelling story?
2: Um, I guess secrets always do. There's always some tension. If you can layer the clues that something is coming and the characters don't know about it then then the reader can feel that in the text. But with with this book I, I started out actually wanting not to have any secrets, not to have a big reveal, and not to have, to have some suspense, but not to have something that makes the reader go, oh, but, but it, it crept in. But for me this book is much more about uh, some secrets that are revealed to the characters. So the the clues at the beginning are perhaps more obvious than in any of my other mm-hmm. books, so that the reader can guess. And I'm very happy for the reader to guess, Um, so the tension then hopefully comes with the reader suspecting, but knowing that the characters don't know. And so when the characters find out what has been going on, that's when I hope that the reader feels the emotion.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I did enjoy the way that those seeds were sown very early on in the book. Um, I love, this, this a section really early, I think it's even page seven, where um, Jeannie talks about the things that her, her heart issues have stopped her lifting, and one of those being babies and one of those being tractor. Yes, which yes. Which is, I just, I've, I really like that. Um, now, I felt in the book that, that Jeannie and Julius were both kind of both trapped and supported, not not only by the cottage, but also by each other. And I was sort of desperate for them to get away, but also really desperate for them to stay together, which is actually something maybe we all feel about our families. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so is that something that you wanted to... I say something you wanted to explore in this, but, but I know it would have been your writing that led you to that, rather than you thinking, I'm going to explore this as yeah. an issue, but...
2: Um, Once once they were created, and I decided that they were twins, I played on that very much so. So I wanted them to both come from the same starting point. I think, I can't remember now, they are born quite a long time apart despite being twins, 23 hours apart, or can't quite remember now. Um, But I wanted them to come from the same point and therefore potentially have the same upbringing obviously there's there's gender differences, and they obviously clearly aren't identical twins but but to start from that point, and they they do completely love each other, but there are duties, and you know Julius is expected to look after his sister, who has been diagnosed with a heart condition, um, and he he pulls against that and yeah, it's fun to explore families. Families have so much stuff going on, don't they? You you can love them and hate them at the same time.
0: Yeah, I also felt there was something of the um, the traits that they shared with their mother who kind of lives on through them. There's this idea, I might be reading too much into it, but the idea that that Julius is called a good man in the same way that his mother was the good woman and that, that Jeannie starts recognising traits, strengths in her mother that she herself shares. So,
2: Yeah, and I think the uh, hopefully the readers come to recognise that. Some of the traits are good but could be seen as potentially harmful. So I think Jeannie is a very proud woman. She won't ask for help and she has completely learnt that from her mother who, who behaves in the same way from the little snippets we, we learn about her. And for quite a lot of the book in a way that's Jeannie's downfall. She's offered help and she rejects it. I think without also giving things away things do turn around by the end of the book and I wanted to show that.
0: Now this book is also really deeply rooted in nature and the joy of growing fruit and veg. Um, and I don't think it's coincidental that the weekend i finished this book i also planted a set of tomatoes oh. <laughs> so uh, among many other lovely many lovely sections there's a particularly nice bit where genie's working in her, her her market garden she's reveling in the radishes and the cauliflowers and the and the beetroots and then we hear her uh, we hear that digging up the, f- the first early potatoes is her greatest joy every year. And is that something you but share? Absolutely, <laughs> that, yes.
2: Although my garden now is very small and we used to have, uh, until the beginning of lockdown really, a small raised vegetable bed. And it really grew about two courgettes and half a dozen leeks. It was so tiny that we decided <laughs> to get rid of it at the beginning of lockdown and and it's now all paved. But over the course of my life, I've had allotments and I've designed my own gardens and built vegetable gardens and knocked down sheds and done all that kind of stuff. And on my allotment, I really, really remember growing new potatoes and the feeling of putting your hands in the soil. And, you know, you've put one wrinkly old potato in the ground and this treasure comes out. That, that has really stayed with me so I passed that on to Jeannie.
0: Now another uh, important element to, to Jeannie and Julius's lives is music. It's the way in which they communicate and the way in which they it's something that brings them together and I had to go away and google the folk song Polyvorm so I could hear what it sounded like. So can you tell us a bit about why you brought music into the book?
2: All my books I write to a soundtrack so I have music playing in the background <clears throat> and often it's just one um, one musician and, and perhaps all their albums. And I struggled to find something with Unsettled Ground, and in the end, I came up with just two tracks. So I've listened to two pieces of music for two years, and one is Polly Vaughan by the version I listened to is by Tia Blake. I don't know if that's the one you found. Funnily enough, yes, first Bob Dylan and then Tia okay, Blake. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then also by another track called We Roamed Through the Garden by, written by my son, who's a musician, um, Henry Ailing, And because I was listening to music, the music seeped into the book, I think. And, and I also wanted to give these characters some joy. It is, it is a sad and quite bleak book, but I think the music sections lift it. And, and for the reader's sake, as well as mine and the characters, I needed something um, that would lift them. But also Jeannie struggles to read and write because of problems with her education, because she was ill. And I wanted to show that she is capable of learning and and being very skilled. She's a great musician and people recognise that. So that was important too.
0: Now, there are loads of other questions I'd like to ask about the book. For instance, the idea behind Julius's name. (laughs) which is uh, something I will leave readers to enjoy Uh, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity of talking about Maud, the dog. Yes. yes. Uh, I found many parts of Unsettled Ground moving but it was was Maud that just tipped me over the edge. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, So would you mind talking a bit about Maud and her relationship with Jeannie and perhaps tell us is there a real-life Maud who inspired the Maud of the book?
2: I I have to admit that I'm more of a cat person (laughs) than a dog person but I wanted Jeannie to kind of have someone on her side for the whole way through, because although Julius is, her brother is, to a certain extent, he, he does, he is pulled away. Um, so Jeannie and Maud, are, they are together for most of the book, um, and so she just, she just appeared and I did a lot of research into what kind of dog she should be and in the end she's a lurcher. I, she is a cross between something, I've forgotten what it is. And I also wasn't sure to, what to call her, so I put out a call on Twitter. <laughs> I have this character called Jeannie, she's got a dog, what shall I call her? And I had hundreds of replies and I settled on Maud. It just seemed to be the kind of name that Jeannie would call her dog. Yeah. Um, and And I absolutely fell in love with her too. She's such a lovely, lovely character, even though she's a bit of a coward and and at certain points when Jeannie really needs her help, she's not necessarily there to help.
0: Now, we're recording this one year after the first lockdown was called, which has been a really extraordinary year. Um, I think I've read somewhere that you haven't found it a productive time for writing.
2: Oh, no, only at the beginning, oh, okay. really. I think, like everybody, it was very hard to focus on anything, and it was—I was just kind of re- refreshing the news feeds on my phone for for a very long time. Um, and it felt like—is—is uh, is writing worthwhile? Is what I shouldn't I be going out saving lives? Not that I have the capability to save anyone's life. And then eventually, I thought, well, this this is silly. This is what I do. I can't, there's noth- I can't do anything else at the moment. And maybe people do need stories anyway. And in fact, sales of books have gone up over lockdown. So people do need stories. They need a distraction. Um, so then, f- you know, maybe that was one or two months. And then, then I went back to normal, really. Well, this is
0: a good time to ask, what is it that you're working on at the moment, then?
2: Yeah, I do have another novel that's underway. I'm about 60,000 words into it, so maybe two thirds of the first draft. And I started it in the October before the pandemic started. And it is a pandemic novel. (laughs) So I thought very long and hard when everything started to get bad. Do I carry on with this with this novel? And I've decided just to see it out and see what happens, because It's not about everyone in the world dying. It's about four or five people who are in a vaccine trial. So they are stuck inside a clinic when the pandemic happens and they decide not to leave. So it's about strangers having to come together when something outside is terrifying.
0: And you said you started this before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, they were. They were. Uh, okay. Yeah, they were having a flu trial actually, rather than a, a, a virus trial. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. One of my son's friends, and uh, lots of students do, I think, sign up for flu trials because they pay a lot of money. Mm. Um, and I was just—I'd never heard of that before, so I was really fascinated. And I signed up for one, but, but I had too many flu antibodies. They didn't want me. Mm. <laughs> That's proper research. Because I do really like writing about nature in my novels, because that's what I like to read in fiction. I like nature description in fiction, and these people are stuck inside a clinic inside, so I thought, how am I going to get the nature in there? So, so there's lots of memories of the main character when she was growing up in Greece, or visiting Greece, really, to, to live with her father. Um, on Paxos. So I need to, it would be ideal to get to Paxos to do some research, but um, that trip has been delayed three times and I'm pretty certain it's going to be delayed again. So it might all be invented, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've never been to
0: Paxos, so. (laughs) Yeah, you'll be doing a lot of guidebook reading. Yes. Mm. You've long been a supporter of libraries, thank you very much for that. But I believe you've also set up a little mini library. Yes, I know. (laughs) Competitor. (laughs) (laughs) But I, well, which I'm sure has been much appreciated while our libraries aren't properly open. Um, So could you tell us a bit about that, but also tell us a bit about what libraries have meant to you as a reader and now as a writer?
2: I don't think I would be a writer without libraries because we didn't have a huge number of books at home. My parents weren't particular readers and I discovered books through libraries when I was about 10 and then I have never stopped um, reading and using libraries. And then also I started writing because there was a short story slam at the Discovery Center in Winchester that I signed up for and then I wrote some short stories and then I wrote my first novel so it all comes back to libraries for me. And I am very lucky to be sent lots of books. As a writer now I get sent lots of proofs and finished novels as well from people who want my quote to put on the cover. And some of those I love and I keep and some of them perhaps I like less and I don't have room for and some of them just aren't for me. So to pass them on I asked my husband and he built me a free little library. So it's like a little cupboard, a little cupboard with a glass door and a pitched roof outside my house. And I put these books in there and people started taking them and then they started leaving some of their own. And now actually, I don't really have room for all my proofs to go in there because everybody is using it every day. And I get little messages from people saying it has been a real support during lockdown. It worries me slightly in that are these books that I'm denying authors sales of and as an author you know that but but I hope that people would leave reviews and you know so people would hear about these books in other ways.
0: Now uh, I was just going to finish off by asking about the exciting news about um, Unsettled Ground being longlisted so how did you hear about that and um...
2: Yeah, long-listed for the Women's Prize, um, which is a prize I've been following for so many years. It, you know, when it was the Bailey's Prize and the Orange Prize before that. Um, and so to be on it is just amazing. Um, I heard about it a little bit before it was announced, of course. You know, they let you know. And I, I was phoned up by my literary agent and i i think i screamed down the phone so that my husband came running up the stairs thinking something terrible had happened um but there's some fabulous books on the long list some of which i've read and, and are great so yeah i don't know about the short list yet and then the, i think the winner is announced in july so we'll yeah we'll see but to make the long list is is absolutely wonderful mm.
0: I find Claire a fascinating
1: writer to talk to, and how great to hear how libraries were such an inspiration to her. Okay, and on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Holly from Farnborough Library, who's going to share a recommendation of a book she's just read. Hello, Holly, and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. Hello thank you for having me. So how are the preparations going for the library's reopening next week?
3: We're very much looking forward to having customers back in the building. We're full of books so it'll be nice to get some of them off the shelves and into people's homes.
1: I'm a really
0: big fan of Farnborough Library. Um, It may not be the most beautiful building from the outside but inside it's just so full of light. Last time I was there just a couple of weeks ago The sun was pouring in through those windows up on top and there's all those beautiful indoor plants you've got in there. It just seems a really well-loved space.
3: Yeah, it's beautiful. I really like it, actually, as you say. From the outside, it doesn't give a great impression, but you just come inside and it is a really lovely open space.
0: I reckon it's probably one of my favourites. I shouldn't have favourites. Oh, it's my (laughs) favourite.
1: I have to get down there I've never been but even even while it's been closed for browsing and stuff like that you've still been working it's not been closed to staff you've been busy behind the scenes uh, we we sort of say we're closed
3: but we're not closed so we've been offering a ready read service ready reads click and collect so we have been choosing books for customers to collect from the door so that has kept us quite busy and that's been quite fun actually because it's something we've not done before and it's been quite a quite a popular service so yeah that's kept us very busy let's turn now to your book recommendation so the book i've just finished reading is the ballad of songbirds and snakes it's by suzanne collins and it's a prequel to the hunger games series i've read all of the hunger games a few years ago and obviously watched the movies as well And I was a little bit apprehensive actually at first to read this book because it is set from the perspective of the boy who will become President Snow, who is the big villain of The Hunger Games. So I was thinking, do I actually really want to get to know this (laughs) this man? I wasn't sure whether I wanted to see him in a different light. But actually, I'm really glad that I did read it because it has a lot of character development in it and there are lots of little bits of foreshadowing that you can see what's going to happen later in the series. It starts off, it's set around the 10th annual Hunger Games where the boy, Coriolanus Snow, is 17 or 18 years old and it is set 65 years before The Hunger Games, so there is a lot of difference in how The Hunger Games are laid out. They're they're 10 years old, they're still finding their feet, and the setting is very different. In the series, the capital is still recovering from the rebellion of 10 years ago. Um, It's not the shining, perfect thing that you see in the rest of The Hunger Games series. So it's really interesting to get to see how it started out. In this series, The Hunger Games, as I say, it's a very new thing, so it doesn't have all of the flashy things that go on in the later books. And actually you get to see a lot of that is developed through ideas coming through in this book, and it's really interesting to think, oh that's where that's going to go later. The promo is really following Corio Snow, as he's known as a 18 year old boy. He's at the Capital Academy, and they're decided for the first year of it, they're going to give the tributes mentors from the Academy. So they're trying out something new.
0: Yeah, so this is the the first year where the mentor, which is such a big thing in the later book, but there's a first year where they're trying it.
3: Yes. At the beginning of the book, you find that Corio is, he's, he comes off quite arrogant, and he finds in the first chapter or two that he gets paired with the female tribute from District 12, which we know very well from Katniss's area. And he's really unhappy about that because he feels he should be doing better. He's in an unexpected
0: position, isn't he? Because he's not the kind of big, powerful, wealthy figure that we know from the later books. So describe what circumstances he's in right at the start of the book, which is quite unexpected.
3: He's living with his grandma and his cousin. Um, He lost both his parents during the rebellion wars and they're really struggling to keep their house, they've got no finances, they're struggling to find enough food to eat, so they're not really in the position that you think of President Snow being this massive power figure later on in the series, he's just a teenage boy who's really just struggling to survive at that point.
1: I was gonna ask, in, in terms of the original series and then this, would it be ridiculous to ask if you had a preference between the two elements, the development of The Hunger Games and this later stage that you see in the sequels?
3: Oh, it's a bit tricky because I think The Hunger Games is its like a modern classic. Um, I think this is just a nice... Padding out of bits of the story that you didn't get to explore fully in the original series. I still think that the Hunger Games has a special place, but it's nice to get a bit more depth of what go like how it got to that stage.
0: We do tend to like these stories of. Uh, the the origin stories that explain the sort of slide into darkness, like we've had the stories of Darth Vader and his origin and, more recently, the Joker. So do you think this book does show the tragic slide into villainy? We know Coriolanus, obviously we know he can't be redeemed, but can we understand him more?
3: I think so, yes. I found I was very prejudiced against him, obviously, at the beginning of the book, thinking, I'm not going to like this guy. Um, And he does come off at the beginning very arrogant, but then he really softens and you start to really feel for him. And at the back of your mind, you're always knowing this can't end well, but really hoping that maybe it might do.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You can definitely see his character developing and it's almost like every choice that he's faced with, it takes him one step closer or further away from what you know is the inevitable end for him. He definitely comes across as that arrogant character in the beginning but through the relationships with other characters is where he really starts to show that softer side or do you think that we kind of see some kind of redemptive quality in some of that arrogance as well I think I quite liked some of those smart comments at the beginning too
3: I think the other characters really push him to become a better person I think on his own he might not have really developed at the beginning of the book he starts off his twinned with the female tribute from district 12 and he's not happy about that and then he gets to actually know her as a person and gets to go and see the tributes uh, where they're being kept. And also at the same time, this develops a new friendship with one of his fellow students in the school. These two characters really push him to have to be a better person.
0: What did you think of the main female character in it?
3: I really like her. <laughs> she's very strong and willful character, but she's—I'm not comparing her to Katniss Everdeen because she's completely different personality-wise. She obviously has some flaws in her character, but she she's stuck in this horrible situation, and she really tries to just make the best of it and use her use her skills. I like that she is a performer, and she uses
1: that to get a bit more representation in the capital and get people to to like her. Mm, It's that cunning element that what the book really seems to drive home is that this year's Hunger Games is really almost like a new start for different modes of gameplay and all of that stuff. I I love that element of it because it is just the more like, I don't know, cerebral (laughs) version of things. So you get this sense that prior to this year, this really important year, all the interest and all the all the activity was based on how brutal you could be this time it's all based on being a bit sneaky being a bit smart I like that
3: yeah I like also that you get to see that actually President Snow is the reason behind a lot of the things that make The Hunger Games what it is in the later books because of just ideas he came up with at school.
0: Yeah, because that's a big drive at the beginning, is to get people more involved, more engaged with, with the whole Hunger Games, and he, he knows exactly what to do to make that happen. But do you think it's hard to read a story where you're not kind of rooting for the main character, as we were very much with Katniss? Uh, do you think you can enjoy a book and dislike its protagonist?
3: I think you can, particularly with this one, because there are other characters that you're rooting for too. You're rooting for Lucy Gray to survive the Hunger Games. You're rooting for... Actually, I did find myself rooting for Corio, knowing that later down the line, it can't go well. I was getting further into the book thinking, maybe it won't all go horribly wrong.
1: (laughs) Some people say it's a bit too slow until those sort of final chapters, um, without giving any spoilers. Others think it's the right, just the right pace. Where do you find yourself on that spectrum?
3: Pace-wise, it's very similar to The Hunger Games. I've actually, after finishing this book, gone back and decided to read the first one again. And The Hunger Games part in The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, they don't get into the arena till about halfway through the book. And that is quite on trend with, with the other stories in the series. You are obviously always waiting for it to get to that point. I think the pacing is quite is quite good. It kept me interested, and I like the chapter lengths as well because they're not too long and they're not too short either. You can sort of I quite like that you can just read a chapter a chapter a day and keep going. She's very
0: good at telling a story, and things like in knowing exactly how to pace and space chapters are, are all part of that. Now, the books, I think they've slightly split diehard Hunger Games fans. I think some people, you've talked about the nods to the original trilogy, the fact that it gives you insights into some of Snow's behaviour and and the features of the games themselves. Other diehard fans have gone, oh no, she shouldn't have written a book about Snow, he's such a villain, I don't want to know anything about him. So I, I get the feeling that you're falling more into the first camp, that you enjoy the little insights that she gives.
3: Well, as I said, I, at the beginning, I thought, do I? I was reluctant to read it in the first place. When I heard she was making a new book, I thought, fantastic, I'm definitely going to read it. And I pre ordered it straight away. And then it just sort of sat on my shelf for about six months, just with me going, I don't think I'm ready to read this yet. Once you get over your prejudices, it is a really good story. And it does, it's not just following Snow, it does show some other bits of Hunger Games as well. You get to learn things like the origin of the song about the hanging tree that Katniss sings later in the book. There's not the same characters from the rest of the Hunger Games series, but you get to see a lot of surnames coming up that you recognise, which will obviously be their children or their grandchildren later in the series. So I think that ties it in quite nicely.
1: I read the first set of books when I was. A teenager I read them about 10 years ago and for me I, I haven't really picked them up since but for me this was a really nice almost like nostalgic way to get back into that world it's like a whole universe that she creates really well and and I, I really loved all those little nods to the to the future and also I think that kind of the thing about the surnames is really interesting because that comes up a lot when you're in the capital but it for me, it kind of gives the idea of legacy and, and the fact that the privilege of being in the capital and having status and stuff is very much passed down in families. And family is, is a theme that comes up quite a lot in this book as well. It's not only nice to read as a prior Hunger Games fan, but it also has some really interesting and developed themes and plot points that make it appropriate for even things that are going on in the world today. Could
0: it be read as a standalone? Or would you say, no, you've got to read the first three and then read
3: this? I think you could read it as a standalone, actually. Or you could even read this one first and then go on to read The Hunger Games later because it's got lots of nice little nods and accents and foreshadowing for what happens later in the series. But uh, as a standalone book, you can just not know anything about the rest of the series and read it on its own as well because it's not relying on the rest of the series.
1: I think I might disagree slightly just because I think even though I have read them it took me a little while to get back into it but maybe that's just the same orientation that a new reader would have
0: I found that uh, I haven't read them for such a long time but I did find she does tell a good story though so within a few pages I was right back in there so it did, did grip me pretty pretty quickly
1: I was going to say, if you, are a, if you are a keen fan of The Hunger Games, there are a wealth of other books out there that you might be interested in. But I was wondering if, if someone came to you with a Ready Reads uh, request saying, I want books just like The Hunger Games or The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, what would you give them?
3: I would say possibly The Divergent series by Veronica Roth and is a similar post-apocalyptic following a teenage girl series i have just last year read a book by Jared Schusterman called Dry and that is a very interesting read. Um, it's not set far in the future. It is set in current times, but there is a drought and basically society collapses around the fact that there is no water and you get to follow different characters and how they're dealing with that. That's a really, really good recommendation I'd give for a teen reading. It's following a 16 year old girl and her experiences of trying to survive in what would happen in modern times if the water just turned off one day and didn't come back.
0: Oh, that's I haven't heard of that. That's a very good recommendation. I was going to finally say about about this book and about Hunger Games generally, is what kind of age recommendation would you give? I mean, really, there's no upper age limit. But is there an age where you think "Mm, that's a bit
3: too young to be
0: reading this kind of book?
3: Uh, Yes, when I was reading this one, I sort of remembered, oh, it is quite brutal, actually. (laughs) So I would say it's not for younger teenagers. There's a lot of gory uh, situations in it. So I would say maybe 14 or 15 plus. And then I'm reading it as a 36-year-old and I love it. So <laughs> not for the younger, younger ones, but anything mid-teenagers upwards would really enjoy it. Well,
0: thank you very much for that suggestion, Holly. It was, it was great to be back in the Hunger Games world again. And we very much look forward to seeing you soon in Farnborough Library.
3: Yes, come and visit us all in Farnborough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Now, at Hampshire Libraries, we've long been firm believers in the power of reading to lift our spirits and even give us support and company when we need it most. And we certainly could all do with a bit of support at the moment.
0: So we're really pleased to introduce a new collection of books, which have been specially selected by experts at the Reading Agency. And they're designed to provide a source of information and self-help for mental health issues. It's an
1: initiative called Reading Well, There are more than 80 books in the Reading Well collection and they'll all be available to borrow from every one of our 40 libraries. Keep a lookout for specially labelled Reading Well books.
0: You'll find links to some of the books on our blog and details about each of them on the Reading Agency website. We'll include links in
1: our show notes. You can search for and reserve any of the books through our library catalogue and you'll also find digital shelves of Reading Well books on our BorrowBox app which you can reserve and download for free.
0: And of course, along with the Reading Well collection, you'll find thousands of other titles on BorrowBox, including our unlimited collection. These are audiobooks and ebooks
1: you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. We always choose one of these unlimited titles for our Hampshire Libraries online book club, which you'll find on our Facebook page. This month, our readers have chosen a book by Jan Martel, not Life of Pi but a later work of his called The High Mountains of Portugal.
0: I haven't read it yet, but apparently it's made up of three linked short stories all set in a different time period. So, you can download the book as an ebook or audiobook and join the conversation through our Hampshire Libraries Facebook group.
1: You'll find the full list of all the unlimited borrow box titles on our podcast notes, but we'll mention a few others here. One of our new unlimited titles is Stories of Hope by Heather Morris, which tells
0: the story behind her best-selling books, The Tattooist of Auschwitz and Silke's Story.
1: We interviewed Heather about Stories of Hope in a podcast in September last year. There's also Melinda Gates' book, The Moment of Lift, which talks about her work heading up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and describes her growing realisation. If you want to change society for the better, it's women you need to invest in.
0: And we've also
1: got the ever-popular Peter
0: James with Need You Dead, one from his Brighton-based series about Detective Superintendent Roy Grace. You might have caught Grace as a new TV drama with the brilliant
1: John Sim playing the lead. And that's it for our pick of BorrowBox for the month. We'll include the full list of unlimited titles on our show notes. Thanks once again to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast.
0: I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.